This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Mintz. Bail is refused. You're out of order! If it pleases the court. To adopt this affirmation, please say the words, I do. I do. Nothing further from this witness. Given the serious nature of this offence, this case is dismissed. Hi, it's Emmanuel here. Last year, I came across a Twitter account that fascinated me, called the Order of the Coif. That Twitter account had and continues to have stories of the law from medieval times, stories about the life of barristers and the life of the people who are bringing matters to court. I was so interested in this that I reached out to find an expat Australian behind the Twitter account who's working in England as a lawyer, a bloke by the name of Edward Walker. Edward is simply described as brilliant. He's got a master's from Cambridge uh, where he focused, I think, on 15th century law in England. And he's just one of those people who has read deeply and thought deeply about every facet of the law uh, is quite learned and it's an absolute joy to talk to him. We were meant to discuss what a barrister's life in 1400s England was like and the story of a particular baroness, Joan Buchan, who was, whose life was studied by Edward and whose story is well outside any stereotype that you might apply to women at the time. But pretty quickly it turned into a wide-ranging, quirky discussion of the history of the law touching on topics like the governance of the bar in England, the privileges of the sergeants of law, uh, the high murder rate in medieval Oxford, trials being run in taverns, how Cambridge was founded, uh, and really at the end, the beauty of the rule of law and the odd system that's grown up to support it in the common law world. It's the Whigs' first go at an interview format, and I'm not much of an interviewer. I promise I'll learn and get better. But please give us your feedback on Facebook and Twitter and let us know if you're interested in similar interviews and perhaps who you'd like us to speak with. So on to my discussion with Edward Walker. We enter the conversation as Edward tells us about the database that has much of the law that he studied, uh, as well as why the practice of law in the 1400s would be familiar to us today. So Edward, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Look, I just want to begin by telling everybody who you are and why I and, you know, the story of how I came across you and the wonders of Twitter. Um, and we'll just sort of take it from there. So, Edward, you are still at Cambridge. Is that right? Um, uh, no, I'm working as an employment lawyer now. So um, uh, I finished my uh, master's degree there. Um, and uh, I'm working for a wonderful organisation called uh, Citizens Advice, which provides uh, uh, free legal advice um, to uh, people who need it. And um, I work as an employment law expert there. But you did a master's at Cambridge in 15th right. century law, is that right? Yeah. So the, the, the first year was dedicated to historiography. And then the second year, I went into my uh, uh, sort of area of research and writing my dissertation and that that interest had sort of predated Cambridge, really. Um, I had an article published on it in Council Magazine, which is the uh, magazine of the bar here. How does one get interested in medieval law? Okay, so um, reading about medieval law is what uh, attracted, attracted me to it. And then finding out that there are thousands of law reports from back then called yearbooks and that a, a professor in Boston had put them online is what gave me the uh, 
to sort of in to just read through what the law was like back then. Just what's what's the URL for that, or what what is it called? If if one was to Google it, um, it's it's the site S I S E I P P database at Boston University. Um, if you type site database into Google, the the first link that comes up is legal history, the yearbooks. Yeah. Yearbooks is what the law reports were called. Um, it describes it a bit, and then further down, it has a link to the database. It says this database index all year reports between 1268 and 1535. 12, um, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and there are 22,000 individual reports. Are they in English or in Latin going farther back? Um, well, I... I, th I think it's, you know, the law changed very quickly from something that would seem foreign to us in the 1200s to something that seems totally familiar to us by the 1400s. So yeah. um, it's my pe period of interest particularly because it feels as, as someone who, you know, aside from my uh, uh, interest in medieval law, you know, I've, I've, I've been pursuing employment law, it felt so relevant to modern practice and tactics and seeing the way that uh, medieval lawyers had litigated their cases or even when they'd screwed up, which I'm sure happens, must happen at least once in every career at the bar, um, uh, unless you're infallible. So, you know, seeing, seeing people backpedaling and uh, 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 defending their clients, you know, it, it gives you a bit of a wry smile that, the more things change, the more the more they stay the same. Tell me, is it these the reports? Are the reports enough themselves to give you that kind of understanding, or were you going into kind of other sources that kind of told you that told you more about the cases that that you were reading? Uh, okay, so it it depends on the case and how much Professor Sipe had on at the time. Yeah. Um. So he's relying on reports that were written in law French, which was a language that developed from when the uh, uh, Norman conquerors came in 1066. Um, and eventually by the mid sort of 1300s, people were mainly speaking English, um, ordinary people, and by 1400, everyone spoke English. Um, but they kept it as the language for law reports only until about the 1600s, I think. Um, even though pleading in court had to be in English, although it, um, pleadings were recorded in Latin. Um, but it's, it's, it depends entirely on how much doc, uh, a professor site wanted to translate. So sometimes he translates, you know, all of the conversation that happens between the justices, you know, when they're arguing about things. And one case that would seem totally familiar to, to your audience is, um, uh, there's a, a, a 1430 case where a plaintiff is bringing a, a, a case against a defendant. He's saying, you sold me some wine uh, through your agent. The wine was unwholesome and unsuitable, mm. um, and uh, you owe me compensation. Um, so the defendant pleaded, you know, that there was a misspelling of Latin on the writ, and the justices just weren't buying that. So they said, okay, try something else. And so then the defendant pleaded that the uh, the, the the contract didn't warrant that the wine would be good. Um, and then uh, Justice Martin um, said the warranty was irrelevant because it was, you know, um, there, it was enacted by 
parliamentary statute that you can't sell unwholesome food. And then the, the clerk of the court pipes up and says, actually, um, I'm just reading the contract. And it says here that you do warrant that is wholesome. And yeah. I can imagine that defendant barrister's face going absolutely red, like he must have started preparing for it about 50 minutes before the case started because, you know, he, obviously he didn't even read it. But, mm. you know, and, and then they, they go on and they talk about the relationship between principal and agent. I thought these, these are concepts that we all learned about at law school. You know, it, the, 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 the history of the common law, particularly in the 1400s onwards, is things that we would find totally familiar. It's so interesting. I mean, it's some of these cases were were the were sort of local feudal lords sitting as judges in their little areas back then. I I, I seem to recall reading it literally for a case where the, I can't remember how far back I went, but I seem to recall reading cases, maybe from the thirteen hundreds or the fourteen hundreds once, where there were the low. It wasn't just like wasn't a judge in the sense that one would imagine a judge now, but it was like the local baron of the area city. When did that um, stop? Uh, so, um, well, manorial courts actually continued until the 1800s because they had a very specific role in what was called a copyhold tenure, which was a type of essentially unbreakable lease. Um, but... Um, originally, if you were the lord of the manor, um, and that doesn't mean you were a lord in the sense of a peerage, it just meant you owned something called, you know, you owned uh, a village, a nice house, you know, that was there, maybe there's a church, there's land around it, um, and these people are your serfs, that's a manor. There are about 9,000 of them in England. So you might have two sisters to each own a half a manor, you know, half a manor, and that's it, that's all their property. Or you might have a magnate who owns 150 manors. Um, there was a, a, a great deal of diversity. But um, uh, being Lord of the Manor gave you the right to sit um, in manorial disputes. But essentially, it had to be like very small claim stuff. So by the 1400s, if the dispute was over a certain amount, it would either be heard in the county court um, or it would be heard in the um, courts at Westminster, so the uh, the central law courts, which were uh, King's Bench, Common Pleas, Chancery, and there was a tax court called the Court of Exchequer and an appellate court called the um, uh, Exchequer Chamber because all the justices would sit in the, the Court of Exchequer when they gave those uh, judgments. Right. So Interesting. Okay. So... Your specialty was the 15th century, the 1400s. That's, That's right. Yep. Yep. So what? What's a what's a barrister's life? What's a sort of senior junior or a junior barrister, an established junior barrister's life look like in 14 something? Um. So, I in in some ways very similar to the relationship that an English pupil master will have. With their pupil, um, I'm not sure if it's term, uh, terminology that's used in New South Wales. Um, we would say, uh, but, but yeah, so, so we call universal. Yeah. Okay. Um, and uh, so, you know, um, instead of having um, 
a, a bar association, um, as you'd have in New South Wales or Missouri or, you know, any country created after the, you know, about 1800, we have four medieval guilds that if you want to be a barrister, you have to join and they're involved in professional regulation and uh, things like that. Um, so Inner Temple, Middle Temple, Gray's Inn and Lincoln's Inn, and they each have a sort of enclave in London. Um, uh, interestingly, Middle Temple uh, is uh, a local authority in its own right. It's sort of because it was built on Templar land um, and it has this temple church, which is, you know, conspiracy theorists love it. Um, yeah. Uh, it's uh, it's sort of held on to this uh, right to to be what's called a liberty, and so it's sort of exempt from the city of London or the city of Westminster. Um, it's uh, yeah, so I think they you know it's it's not that glamorous having your own local authority rights. It means you have the right to decide you know who's going to take out the the bins and uh, how's the sewage going to work. So. You know, but it's 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 an interesting um, uh, distinction between the fact that we've just organically allowed these essentially private organisations to continue to determine who enters the bar. Um, in fairness, it's 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 all done above board and, and based on merit, but but it's it's unusual. So do you know, so the City of London is itself a curious thing, right? It's this sort of there's this there's london there's this there's the city that is london that we one thinks about london as this enormous kind of city and within it there's this thing called the city of london that's this separate authority right and yes. you're saying yes you're saying right. the temp one of the temples is like that itself the middle temple is um like yeah so middle temple um uh, they've made some agreements with the city of london government which is itself quite interesting uh, um, it's basically what the square mile, it's the medieval CBD of the City of London. Um, yeah. And while we have a, a sort of a regional London government that is the equivalent of, you know, um, you know, governments, if, if, you, if you had a local authority for all of Sydney, like you have, have for Brisbane, um, we have have that but for that square mile in the center it's controlled by the city of london government which has its own police force um and has the most complex electoral system so um residents have a quarter of the votes um uh, companies have three quarters of votes and then also guilds vote so like the goldsmiths and the uh the drapers and the grocers and all the the guilds that have survived mostly as charitable institutions have votes in who becomes sheriff and then you can't become Lord Mayor unless you've been sheriff. It's it's the most complicated electoral system in the world. And so um, the, but it's the teams participate again. again. Are they, are sorry, they, go on. Sorry, do the inns participate in that? Are they or are they sort of a, a bit aloof from um, No. No, so um, in the reign, I think it was Henry the Third. He said that no lawyer may practice in the city of London. So they moved just outside the walls. Um, uh, the uh, why did he say border that? between middle? I, I I don't know. I think I think there was a, there was an issue that you know lawyers in London were. Um, 
causing problems or whatever it was, he said, you know, there are not allowed to be any lawyers sort of hanging around in London. The thing is that London had its own legal system called the Custom of London, which was much more trade oriented. Um, uh, it allowed for women, for example, to trade in their own right separate from their husbands, which was not the case outside of, of London. Interesting. Um, uh, and um, uh, yeah, so it's 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 in in England. A lot of these things have uh, sort of evolved organically, and we just take the attitude, I guess, or I've 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 taken on the attitude that if it ain't broke, don't fix it, even if it's like really weird. And and you know, we were set up six hundred years ago. Um, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, okay. So, so you've got these inns of court, and they act like individual bar associations, in effect. Um, and they admit exactly. They admit readers and barristers. Um, you've got yeah. Courts that one would. Parliament is Parliament is what would what you'd expect it to be. That is close to what it was today. Um, is that right in the fourteen? It's yes. Yeah, and courts. Yeah, are... precisely. So, yeah. Um, go on. Um, well, so uh, the, the courts were um, uh, common pleas, which was for, for uh, uh, claims between subjects, between individuals. You had the Court of King's Bench, which was um, uh, cases between the king and a subject, also a, a small civil jurisdiction. Um, in certain dress passes. Um, then you had the Court of Chancery, which dealt with equity matters. Um, and uh, then you had the Court of Exchequer, which is a tax court. Now, between between them, you had 12,500 cases a year, which on a population base of 2 million makes them about five times as litigious as, as modern Britons. You know, they really love to bring lawsuits. Um, but, uh, you know, for, for in, in England, you know, we can still see the, 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 the residue of that because in the High Court, we have the Chancery Division, we have the Queen's Bench Division, which when the Queen passes on will become the King's Bench Division again. So, so you know, again, it's an element of familiarity, particularly for English lawyers, to, to see that, you know, these courts had often the same names, often they had the same jurisdiction. So, um uh trusts were used quite a lot in the 14th in in the 1400s um uh for particular types of tax avoidance um but if if your trustee was not doing um with the with the land what you wanted them to do as the beneficiary or the settlor um you couldn't you couldn't sue them in common law you had have to go to the chancery for equity now that's exactly the same as law is now um and i think it's just a, another example of you know how 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 continuous that's been and i guess as, as someone who's a dual citizen of these countries i don't just see this as the uh heritage of england but you know it's the heritage of australia and new south wales and canada and and new zealand as well yeah i mean it's it is remarkable that this kind of thing has gone on for so long and I mean, one of the things that I love about the common law or the common law system is that there are some things that appear to be completely irrational 
for example, juries, but on the other hand are so great and you wouldn't make them if you wouldn't sit down and design a jury, for example, but you can see if you trace back through history how these things grew up um, and how they yeah. remain because they work in a sense. I mean, they, you know, if it, as you said, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So, um, yeah. But what would my day look like? You know, I wake up. What 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 is the day of a of a barrister? Uh -huh. Okay, so assuming you've um, paid the significant or your parents have paid the significant fees and you've gone through eight, ten years of training, and the, although you'd start when you're about 15, so you, you'd probably be admitted, you know, um, uh, as, a, uh, as a reader um, when you're about 25, 26, 27, then you would start pleading cases. You'd really stop being a pupil once you become a reader um, once you'd spent two terms of reading, you become a bencher of your inn, um, uh, which is sort of like the governing body. Um, and then above them, they had the sergeants at law, which were like medieval QCs, although proportionally there were a lot fewer of them. Um, so essentially, you know, you would, uh, during legal term, um, you would live, you know, in chambers uh, with your pupil and probably with your business partner um uh you know or the people you shared the, the the other person you shared chamber chambers with um uh the court sat between 8 a.m and 11 a.m in westminster hall um monday to saturday so it and there was no you know the case starts at 10 a.m it's you arrive on the day and and you know everything's floating and you try to get to the front of the queue really um so you you probably take a boat down river rather than traveling through the the filthy streets. Um, um, and uh, Westminster is just a bit further down the river from from the from the, from the temple. Um, and uh, then you know you would meet possibly the attorney uh, now called solicitors um, of your client or the client themselves. And then you, you, you go into, uh, Westminster Hall. So it was a huge hall and they'd set up the courts, um, in the, uh, Southeast corner, you had the, uh, court of chancery and in the Southwest corner, you had the court of King's bench. And then further up on the side, you had the court of common pleas. They were sort of set up almost on wooden, um, stages i guess and there would be a bar of the court and inside the bar of the court would be all the clerks and then the judges would be sitting on a kind of bench higher than everyone else um and uh yeah they would get through preliminary hearings pretty quickly um and one of the uh, uh privileges of sergeants was if you were standing around of the bar the bar of the court um, waiting for your client's case, and then there was a there, there would often be discussion between the justices and the sergeants about what the law is, which is recorded in the yearbooks. Um, you had the privilege, if you were a sergeant, to sort of interject into that and say, "Well, I remember doing a case, you know, ten years ago where this was the outcome. So how can that be the law if it's going to be?" Um, uh, consistent precedent in this court. Um, so, you know, you if I was of... there, if I was a sergeant and I was present and someone else's matter was being heard, I might interject and do that. 
Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah, why? Be- be- because the sergeant was considered, because the proportions were much lower, you might have only 10 or 15 sergeants at any one time. It was an almost guarantee of going to the bench. Um, it was, it was, um, right. so, you know, it was considered the bench in training. So they, they would spend some of their time at Westminster Hall then they would spend some of their time on circuits. So they would ride out to places like Nottingham and then hear trials based on preliminary uh, preliminary hearings that would be heard at Westminster Hall to resolve any issues of law. They would then ride out on circuit, um, ju- you know, two judges. So you might have a justice of the King's Bench with a um, Baron of the Exchequer. They were judges of the Exchequer Court, the tax court, but they were called barons. Um, and you would hear the jury trial, um, and uh, uh, then once they, uh, you know, to resolve any issues of fact, so you carefully separate issues out of law from issues of fact, you know, law for the judge, fact for the jury, and then you would return, you know, on your circuit eventually to Westminster, where the successful party would ask for their damages and costs, um, which is, you know, Pretty pretty similar to what we have now. Wow! And so, in terms of trials, they they were held. In, let's say there was a, a factual dispute about some sort of civil matter in in London. I know on those scant details, but there was witnesses that needed to be deposed. Would they that trial would occur at Westminster, or that would occur somewhere else? How how would that go down? Um. Okay. So. Uh, if it had occurred in London and the matter was something that came within what was called the custom of London, which was like the London, uh, in the same way that you might have different state laws, you know, Queensland law might be different from New South Wales law on something, you know, um, City of London law custom was considered valid for City of London issues. Um, so it would depend if it was to be heard um, by, the, uh, they had two courts, um, uh, the sheriff's court and the mayor's court. Um, if it was an issue that, while it occurred in London, would only be heard at Westminster, um, then, uh, uh, you know, you would, you would go to Westminster to, to um, purchase your writ, um, and they would hold um, a jury trial typically at St. Martin Le Grand. So there was a church there at St. Martin Le Grand, which was very good for setting up jury trials. You know, you could sort of move the pews out of the way, and um, it got a lot of... You, you, there, were, there were some very strange places that jury trials were held, taverns and, you know, if they're on circuit. Um, you know, basically anywhere there was some open space oh. where you could put down some chairs. Um uh, you know they would they would but but uh, Saint Martin Le Grand was was a very popular one for uh, um, things that occurred in London or Middlesex, which is the county London's in, um, uh, or if it was the mayor or sheriff's court, it would be heard in the Guildhall, which is like the um, the town hall of Sydney. Um, uh, but it, it depended entirely on uh, on. So for example, um, there's a very good example of. Um, uh, 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 a woman I, I've, I've studied in my dissertation, um, Joan Beecham, Baroness Begavany. So um, uh, she uh, was a very tough lady. Um, 
she got into a sort of pitch battle with 50 of her guys up against 50 of another lord in Birmingham, you know, in a dispute over land and money and, you know, the usual things, but very unusual to see a woman do that. Um, anyway, in um, 1423, um, she had brought down a boy from her manor of Ashby de la Zouche in Leicestershire um, to work in her kitchens. Now, for a peasant boy to go to London, he might think that's a great step up. And when he arrives, he yeah. sees, like, he's the boy turning the spit for 18 hours a day. Um, so he's gone from, like, wide open fields and, like, natural living to you know, uh, a, a, a city where the streets are filled with, you know, muck from animals and mud and, and snow and mud. And, you know, he's he's down in the basement turning a spit 18 hours a day. So what happened was he uh, decided to take up a job with a, um, uh, off the top of my head, a tanner. Um, it, essentially apprenticeship, you know, it could eventually lead him to a better life. Um, than uh, a boy turning a kitchen spit. It's very unlikely he'd end up head of the, the kitchen. Very unlikely he'd be sent upstairs to be a, you know, in service in that way. Um, and so, um, but the, the Baroness uh, took severe um, offence at this. It was also uh, unlawful by the Statute of Labourers of 1351. Um, uh, so she sued the 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 boy who was turning the kitchen spit and the tanner who'd taken him on as apprentice um but because that related to statute law which was passed at parliaments generally held at westminster even though it was within the city of london um uh it's something that was heard at at, at westminster um but it's, I think, one of the wonderful things of, of looking into medieval law is you find out cases like that and you find out, you know, senses of per people's perspective. And this woman, you know, was was so offended by someone. To, you know, she felt like she'd done him a great service by bringing him down from the country, you know. And he thought, I've ended up in this really, you, you know, uh, screwy situation um, and I'm being offered, you know, a, a, an apprenticeship where I'll end up as a member of a guild, you know. So, you, you know, you see these stories, um, I guess they're anecdotes if, if you don't put them into a sort of historical framework, but I I think, you know, they're, they're just a fascinating insight in, in, into the past, you know, as history and as law. Is your mattress making noises it never used to? Or is it sagging, causing you to... Then it's time to get a new one. Get the best sleep at the best value with a Nectar mattress. Prices start at just $499, and you get $399 in accessories thrown in, a 365-night home trial, and a forever warranty. Go to Nectarsleep.com. How common was it for? Uh, I take it so the, she was a baroness and she sued. Does that mean that did women at that time have legal standing to do that kind of thing? To, to, to legal standing to engage in um, engage the courts? No. Well, married women didn't. Um, unmarried women and widows did. Right. Um, so. The story of Be uh, Joan Beecham is absolutely fascinating, and unfortunately, women in the 14th century 
even by some very um, uh, prominent and talented women historians like Caroline Barron, um, have painted um, noble women of this period as sort of pawns and princesses in distress. Um, uh, you know, um, Joan Beecham, she left armour in her will to her grandson, her armour, you know. Um, she was not the hysteria, you know, the, so the, the stereotype. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, she, uh, you know, essentially, um, I have to give you a bit of back history. Um, uh, when King Edward III died, he'd been on the throne 50 years, his grandson took over and his grandson was basically, you know, Prince Joffrey. Um and um, in 1398, um, in, sorry, in the 1386-88, and 88, uh, Parliament sort of stepped up and gave him a, uh, you know, um, a, a chiding and also imposed a commission that would control the king's household. And the king was not going to have this, so he went and raised an army and then lost a battle. Then they had a second Parliament where they basically brought most of the important people in his household you know, to sham trials and had them executed and impeached. Well, they had them impeached in the same procedure you see in the US Congress today, you know, um, uh, charges drawn up in the lower house, trial in the upper house, and the upper house can determine punishment. Um, so uh, essentially, um, uh, Joan Beecham was married off to a guy who was, she was 17, he was 53. Um, and about three years before he died, um, uh, she persuaded him, uh, he owned a, a, a lordship in Wales, which was, you know, it had a castle and a town and a lot of land, but also sort of, I, I guess, vice-regal rights, you know, like more than just a normal lord owning land. Um, she persuaded him to give it to her in full for life. And that was not usual. Usually got the wife got one-third for life. Um, she got everything for life and, in fact, outlived her children. So her children never inherited from her. Um, her granddaughter did. Um, but once her husband died, she was still very young um, and she never remarried. And so she was what was called a femme soul, um, you know, a single woman. Um, and she had the same uh, property rights as a man. And so... From 1411 to 1435, we see her crop up repeatedly in um, the plea role. So she was a very active litigator. In most terms, you can see her. She's got about 10 active cases. Um, uh, and uh, also, she was closely related to the royal family, and so they gave her special tasks um, but she was also a troublemaker. So there's this this very sort of interesting sense that, you know, the government will send her uh, an important mission. She gets to do things that other women, you know, don't, such as, you know, they um, got some lords to go around to the counties, to the wealthy people to cough up a forced loan, basically. Um, and she was made a commissioner um, of that. And, and she was the sole woman on a list of 35 men. Um, so, you know, she was trusted because her aunt was the mother-in-law of the king. So, like, the king was her kind of cousin-in-law, I guess. Um, and, um, 
yeah, she she enjoyed the full property rights. I guess, you know, this is a question that's often asked. Why would any woman remarry? Um, two answers to that is, number one, companionship. You know, if, if you're willing to um, uh, uh, spend the rest of your life without companionship in exchange for full control of your property, uh, I guess I guess so. Um, you know, the, the second, second reason is that I guess increasingly women could put their property into trusts to, you know, to, to ensure that it didn't automatically become the husband's property. Um, so, you know, uh, Joan Beecham never married. Her sister married five times and seemed to do just as well. Um, uh, so, you know, because with with each marriage, her sister got one third. And so, you know, by the fourth or fifth husband, um, uh, you know, she's she's doing quite well. But I think the main thing is just to, to sort of change the, the narrative of women of the period. You know, yes, a lot, perhaps most women um, were uh, in a subordinate position um, and it very much depended on class. Um, a peasant woman would not have had these opportunities but the small proportion of women who were, um, uh, if I can use language, these badasses, um, you know, we should tell their story because it, it reveals a lot to us about the period and, and what people thought was normal. It's interesting yeah, and about the class aspect because I imagine the lot of a lower class man was pretty horrendous as well. In, in the period... not as bad. Well... In the period that I study, it's considered a bit of a golden age. So what happened was England was considered overpopulated by about the 1330s. So it had a population of four to five million. Um, plots were getting smaller and smaller for peasants. And then the Black Death helped Caelan along and very helpfully wiped out a third of the working age population, um, which immediately... You reduce the, you know, you reduce the supply. You increase the demand and the price. Um, a lot of peasants um, were able to either uh, negotiate uh, leases instead of being peasants and serfs, um, uh, and uh, or some of them just walked off the land and worked as a day labourer and made a, a reasonable amount of money doing it. Um, it's only in the 1500s when population starts to rise again um, that uh, wages compared to the cost of consumables um, equalizes again. So th this this was an age, the 1400s, when people were probably living be a lot better than their forebears, and of course it had a very low property franchise. So. Um, you could vote in national elections for the House of Commons. You could turn up to county court to be a juror or a grand juror, which is an aspect of law that the Americans have kept that we haven't. Um, uh, you could also elect the coroner. Um, and uh, you had to meet the, what was called the 40 shilling franchise, which was two pounds. Um, the income to be considered a gentleman um, was ten pounds, so two pounds was pretty low by the standards of the day, and to have that sort of wider uh, section of society having a say in elections, um, I think it did bring the country together. You can see in England that by the mid thirteen fifties, 
you know, even people in Yorkshire had a sense of themselves of Eng as Englishmen, whereas most other countries, um, uh, you know, you look at even France, and they've got people who speak Breton, you know, or even, you know, up until 60 years ago, people who spoke Breton and Picard and various languages. And whereas England was a very um, cohesive um, uh, nation with a sort of sense of national identity very early. And I think uh, uh, Parliament has a lot to, uh, 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 you know, was responsible for a lot of that um, because the... The, the lesser people in society did feel that they had an investment in, uh, in the, the, the society that they were part of. Yeah. I, assuming then that like, the lot wasn't so bad for a man during that time, women in the peasant or the lower classes were sub... They had less opportunity to sort of stand up in their own right. But is that right? Yeah, it would have been pretty. It it would have been a pretty grim life because you would be expected probably to do some work that we, you know, twenty first century person might consider of medieval people, you know, men's work. You'd be expected to milk the cows and to, you know, do various farm jobs, and then you have to do all the domestic jobs as well. Um, but an interesting uh, a fact about that is that um, people tended not to marry until their sort of early to mid-twenties, and then they would leave their parents' house and set up their own house. So, And this is common in, in Northern Europe, um, which actually sort of distinguishes us from people think that, you know, you used to have four generations under one roof, whereas in fact... It was normal for for a uh, peasant uh, couple married to then go set up their own household. Um, but for well, the woman, it would be so pretty life grim. Was better than you think. Well, it well, it, it was better than it had previously been when there were you know um, two hundred and fifty percent more people um, and the same number of lords, um, and uh, you know you you had a smaller plot and less. Uh, bargaining power, um, and but it did get worse um, later in, in in the fifteen hundreds. So it was a short period because also in the fifteen hundreds with the Tudors, they didn't like holding parliaments. They might go ten years without holding a parliament. Whereas in the fourteen hundreds, you had a parliament pretty much every year um, from fourteen hundred to fourteen ninety nine. Um, which meant annual elections, um, and uh, uh, you know it's um, you know one one of those things again that sort of uh, emphasizes that sense of of national cohesiveness and and, and investment that, that that people had, even people who couldn't vote um, would often just turn up to county court and vote and just get away with it. So, you know, it, it was, it, you know, there was no doubt it was a hard life, but it was an easier one than people who had gone before, and it was easier than people who had come after them. So a bit, bit, bit of a golden age in terms of the person at the bottom, in terms of their, their income. And what, what were the odds of someone <clears throat> from the bottom becoming a barrister or becoming an attorney? Um, Basically none? Uh, or low? Possible? Um, so there, if you were a genuinely a peasant, um, a grammar schools, um, for basically for smart 
boys um, who were of, uh, you know, uh, low means. Um, They started appearing in the 1500s, really. Um, In the 1400s, if you were uh, a really clever peasant child, you would probably go into the church um, because you couldn't afford the fees for you know, bar school, basically. Um, you would have to spend 10 years in bar school spending 15 to 20 pounds a year on upkeep for your robes and your rent and your servant who cleaned your clothes and, you know, um, probably fines you paid out because the, the medieval inns of court barristers, were, they had a great sense of camaraderie they also tended to you have a lot of citations for stabbing each other with daggers and, you know, um, all more innocent stuff that, you know, these boys will find three pence each because, you know, there's a, a rabbit warren that's owned by the master of the, of Lincoln's Inn and, you know, they went and chased and, and picked and got some rabbits from it. So, you know, you've got a mix of, 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 of sort of, uh, uh, misconduct from, you know, stabbings to just, chasing some rabbits um but um you know there, there was that sense of camaraderie so you might get drunk at dinner one day and, and decide to have a little bit of a fight with your friend and stab them that that kind of thing i a lot of that did happen so there was the, um so academics have looked at and looked at medieval oxford um so uh everyone who was studying in oxford was technically what 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 you call a clerk a cleric a member of the church, yes. so they weren't they weren't a priest yet, but they were expected to live celibately. Although, of course, they never did. Um, you know, uh, they would find liaisons either with their opposite sex, or their own sex. Um, you know, uh, you see a very high murder rate in Oxford, and there a, a riot is the reason the University of Cambridge was created because a whole bunch of scholars had to leave Oxford after they sort of it's it, it, you you'd carry your knife everywhere because you used to cut up your food um and a a group of students at Oxford in I think about 1218 um took offense at the quality of ale and uh uh just uh, splashed into the face of the tavern owner and then it turned into a huge brawl of of town against university um and uh yeah uh, many had to leave and they set up the university of cambridge thank goodness um but you know it was a more violent society generally you know it was more normal for um just a homicide to end up because you know you have lack of, of of meds you know good medicine you know a stab wound that we could easily heal today they couldn't heal then someone would bleed out um and um you know ev- everyone being yeah. armed um and you know you you have um reports of you know two groups of friars or priests getting into a fist fight you know so even people who are in the church were just as much part of that male mindset of the medieval period it was a violent period you brought up your children with violence that was considered uh, moral, uh, morally correct. Uh, in fact, it was considered probably you're doing something wrong if you're not hitting your children. Um, and, uh, you know, it, yeah. it's, it's, it's the way society was, was run in essence, you know, uh, it, by, by violence, you know, if you, if, 
if I mean you 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 can't stand up to you to your social superior because your social superior has superior physical force to you. Um, the only people you can uh, use physical force against are your uh, uh, you know people who are similarly situated. So you see a lot of murders and uh, a lot of fist fights and all sorts of things like that. Um, that 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 was normal, but. I think it is also true to say that while there was a high level of violence, um, England was a country that I feel could be said in a lot of ways to have you know, uh, complied with the rule of law and that they did take it seriously. So there's a very interesting case, I think it's from the 1460s, where you had two justices out on circuit um, and um, they had finished a case against a, uh, a defendant who had lost, and so the plaintiffs say, I'll have my damages and costs, and they're proceeding to execution um, of that judgment, and they receive a letter from the king, which is signed with the privy seal, but not the great seal. So effectively, it's a private letter. Um, and they say, we, we would like you to yep. not proceed against the defendant. And the um, uh, justices sent a letter back saying, no, um, uh, you know, we, we have an obligation to give the same judgments from term to term and to be consistent and follow our consciences and follow the law. Um, so to see judges standing up to a yeah. king who just four years earlier had taken power by force, by, you know, violent force... Um, you see it also in the writings of Sir John Fortescue, who was Chief Justice of the King's Bench, um, talking about how he viewed medieval England. He said, France was a dominium regale, um, where the king was a, 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 you know, a god, essentially. He could decree anything. And he said, ancient Rome was a dominium politicum, you know, the ancient Roman Republic. And he said, England is a dominium politicum et regale. It's like saying it's a constitutional monarchy. The king is circumscribed by law. And I think you do see cases of yeah. that. Um, and you see cases of kings, uh, uh, parliaments holding kings to account, um, often in ways that we would find quite violent, i.e. killing his ministers. Um, but it is uh, uh, es essentially the, the, the legislative branch holding the executive branch to account. What do you think made that the case? Like why, why did England do that where historically so few places have? It's a good question. It's a good question. You had one king and one common law and a fixed place of uh, justice um at the uh westminster hall justice center if i'll i'll uh name it name it that um and um you had the thing is you didn't have well until the 1400s when a lot of a lot of aristocrats really tried when it was originally set up william the conqueror gave his followers estates that were very far apart so being the Earl of Lincoln, for example, didn't mean you had any power over Lincolnshire or even mean most of your estates were in Lincolnshire. Um, you know, it was a title. Whereas if you were like the Count of Poitou in France, like 
you were like a, a, a you had real power over that county. So England prevented the the emergence of sort of regional lords, and it had this single national culture um, and a group of people who loved using litigation and um, a parliament which was enacting statute law, which judges were were um, construing, and and so it was it was all these factors coming together um, that I think uh, made made England quite lucky in in developing early. I think it's I think it's the only country that can make a serious claim to to having essentially a fairly continuous rule of law you know there have been some there have been some kings overthrown um when they went too far or became despotical um but for the most part since the 1400s i do think it's a king that's uh sorry sorry country that's adhered to the rule of law so for example even henry the eighth you know because we have parliamentary sovereignty he would pass his, you know, attainders against his wives to have them executed through Parliament because it's a parliamentary act, parliamentary supremacy, ergo it's a valid death sentence. Um, he was at least following the, the forms and so there was procedural fairness even if there was not always substantive fairness. Um, but procedural fairness is a form of substantive fairness in its own right, you know, it, not fully, but, but it's, it's a start. And and it's what they had, and it's what they they uh, you can see in their writings that they believed in. Yeah, and and I mean, in some senses, with the with the still having an independent bar, we still have, we still enjoy, and still having a parliament. A absolutely, I think, and I think an independent bar is such an important uh, uh, part of maintaining the rule of law. Um, the fact that you have um uh people who are not uh in the independent bar career um uh, uh advocates for one side or the other you know you'll have barristers who do both defense and prosecution work um or at yeah. least you do in this country i assume you do in australia as well um you know you will have employment lawyers that you know represent you know, um, employers and employees, you know, claimants and respondents. Uh, unfortunately, we've abolished the, the term plaintiff in the UK and replaced it with the more user-friendly claimant, which I find a bit milk toast. But anyway, um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's um, yeah, I think it's, you know, the independent bar, because it has that independence and that, that, that history that gives it a unique identity. Um, and, and it's so strongly felt in England because before you're allowed to be become what's called a member of the outer bar, which means the outer bar, mm. because originally law students sat inside the bar of the court. So once you become a, became an utter barrister or an outer barrister, um, they still use those utter barrister in your sort of barrister completion ceremony. Um, uh, you know, um, that, that sort of independent profession before you're allowed to do that, the, the inns of court require that you attend 10, what are called qualifying sessions. So basically you have to go to their, you know, their great hall 
and attend a dinner and a moot. And the seating is 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 completely random, so you could be seeing next to a court of appeal judge, you know, not even a baby yeah. barrister. You've just got a law degree or maybe a law de- a degree from Cambridge as well. Um, and so I think it is really important to convey to barristers that they have a long and honourable history um, and it's always played an important part in helping to uphold and maintain the rule of law, I think. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that saddens me is it used to be, I think every week or, or fairly often, you could just go down to the Bar Association here in Sydney and do the same, sit down at lunch and you might be sitting next to the Chief Justice or you might be sitting next to a, a, a you know, a pupil. Um, and those days have gone, although we try and have, I think, quarterly luncheons now where you kind of have that thing. But it is an odd thing, this idea that there's a group of people who are there to kind of administer the law on behalf of everyone, but are kind of private, um, yeah. and not 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 completely an arm of the state. And I think yeah. it's it's fascinating and fabulous. Yeah. Also, uh, it's it's yeah. um, not accepting if you have entered, you know, a top commercial set, you know. Um, after first class marks and you're obviously a future chief justice. Um, for most barristers, they are self-employed, you know, in England and in Australia. You know, they, well, at least in the UK, they don't get sick pay or maternity pay or paternity pay or anything like that. They're responsible for their own pension. So, you know, there's a prestige attached to it and importance attached to it. There are also great sacrifices attached to it in terms of work hours, in terms of lack of security, um, in terms of, you know, knowing where your next brief is going to come from. Um, so yeah. I think that, you know, the public should sort of take heed and have some appreciation, uh, at least in this country, particularly for the criminal bar, who are so criminally underpaid that many people don't even bother, you know, going into the criminal practice area because um, there's just no money in it. And we don't have any organized, you know, really organized criminals like in Australia. So, you know, there's no one with money, basically. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard here. We've we've been fighting our own battles here to get legal aid because we hadn't had any increase in legal aid here in in over a decade for criminal matters. But it's far worse in the UK, as I understand it. And yeah, yeah, uh, no increase in the mid nineties. Yeah, wow. Um, it's uh, and and the government had essentially has backfired. They said we have the largest legal aid budget in the world. You know we should be able to deliver you know good legal aid service with less. Um, mm. Fact is, it was two billion pounds a year. Yes, it was more expensive than any other. It was a great system. Um, it protected people. Um, it is still the case that at least say in a murder trial, you know, irrespective of your means, you know, the Queen's counsel is available is available to the Queen's subjects. You will get a QC if you're accused of murder, even if you're a pauper. Um, yeah. But for civil cases, um, you know, that's, that's where they've really uh, taken away uh, important legal aid provisions. And they've found that it has resulted in um, unexpected consequences and in, increased costs in other areas. So it, it actually doesn't work out fiscally 
in the long term. Yeah, yeah. Edward, um, I could talk to you forever. This has been fascinating and hopefully hopefully it survives the cutting room floor because I, I found it fascinating. Um, is there anything else you wanted to, to say or talk about before we call it? Um, no, uh, just to uh, thank you for the opportunity to talk about this admittedly very obscure and abstruse topic um, to, uh, to some people back home. Um, I, it's been a pleasure. Thanks. You, you have a Twitter? I do. So uh, it's uh, at Justice Tierwit, that's T-Y-R-W-H-I-T, who is a medieval justice in the King's Bench. So it's, uh, uh, if you look up Order of the Coif, so um, Order, O-R-D-E-R, -E of the Coif, C-O-I-F, um, that's my blog, and you can also find my Twitter there, which is essentially what the name of the uh, sergeants at law were. They were called the Order of the Coif. So that's the uh, 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 origin of that. But um, otherwise, it has been a real pleasure, you know, speaking to someone about this and uh, also speaking to people back home about it. Thanks, Edward. I really Cheers. appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Please like The Wigs on Facebook at... The Wigs Podcast. Don't forget to rate and review on iTunes. Hey, it's Jim Minns here. For the final time, I just want to remind you all that you can also follow us on Twitter at Wigs Podcast. And it is there that you can send us your questions and we'll answer them on the next episode. This podcast was brought to you by Minimal Productions, produced by Jim Minns. powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Greetings from Ireland. This is a quick taste of what to expect from the Tommy and Hector with Larita Blewett podcast. There's about there's rubbish and old hurlies and everything in the utility toilet and I'd be sandwiched in there and I just go and someone then I can hear someone in the kitchen going, I'm in here by the way. But I remember visiting your house as a teenager and none of your toilets had locks in the door and I'd often be wandering out from the kitchen and hear your mother shouting out <laughs> I'm in here by the way <laughs> just let anybody who's passing know I'm, I'm in here by the way <laughs> listen to this show on the Acast app or wherever you get your podcasts Acast Acast, Acast, Acast recommends, recommends.